when I was in first grade at Christmas, I received a sketchbook and I sketched a, an image of a Lamborghini. Again, I've always loved cars. I then sold that to my friend for 50 cents, which his mother lovingly gave him for lunch money. And I went and used that to buy a little stuffed bear, which I gave to a girl in class. And that's when I realized I loved entrepreneurship. Every week here on More Than Profit, we explore the stories of leaders, entrepreneurs, and investors who have made a difference in the world while building successful businesses. We sit down with each guest and dive into their personal journey, their struggles and triumphs, and the lessons they've learned along the way. On this episode, we sit down with Landon Young, a transdisciplinary entrepreneur, educator, and investor focused on high-impact technology innovation. Landon was named one of the 13 Kauffman Foundation Global Scholars in 2013 and was awarded the National Science Foundation Fellowship in 2011. Landon holds a PhD from Purdue University and is currently Director of University Initiatives at Elevate Ventures, the Midwest's most active seed stage fund. Landon is also an active advisor and board member for several venture-backed startup companies. Listen in as he discusses how he actually failed his PhD dissertation two times, but he would not let go and continue to push through, and also the importance for him in building sacred time with his family and his pursuit of work-life integration as he has sought to tirelessly impact the world around him in positive ways. So Brian, I had this random opportunity a couple of years ago. It was really random. I got invited to this thing and I actually got to meet Prince Charles, now, now King Charles. Got a couple minutes talking to him and uh, it was pretty cool, you know? Okay. But let, let's be clear though, because now that I, I know that story, he was in a long line. How many people were in that line? <laughs> I don't know. So, and tell him what happened. You tried to kiss him. That didn't go well. <laughs> they took him down. But yeah, so so a lot of people, because with our guest today, I, I found out that he will ask him who the most famous person he ever met is. But for me, it was Bubba Watson. I went to a concert and he was backstage. I was backstage. And it was, I think that's probably the most famous person I ever spent that amount of time with. We, we did a concert, you know, I met his wife, his kid, all that stuff. I, I don't think he liked me. <laughs> but again, that's, that's not either near there. It was just, you it met just you yeah, met I met him and it was, yeah. So I would say that's mine. So, so today we have Landon Young. So Landon, who is the, the most famous person you've ever met? Bruce Willis. Oh, okay. In, I, I, I only say that surprisingly because I read your profile on your, on your company's website and it said it was Chuck Norris. So I just, you know, I didn't know you were going to come out with a Bruce Willis. You said most. Yeah. And there was no line. It was just, <laughs> yeah. uh, just me and Bruce. How'd you get to meet him? Yeah. I was living on Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn and they were filming a movie and I walked out my front door and there was a, a car with bullet holes in it. First, I was surprised. Then I looked in and, um, Bruce Willis. So wow. I did what anyone would do. I snapped a selfie and kept going to work. Wow. Uh, so you didn't hello, meet him hello. though. Did you talk to him? I said hi. Him? I said, and what did he, okay, okay. He disregarded me completely, Brian. But thanks for calling that out. <laughs> well, no, I just, again, that's a little bit like when, when Bryce is telling people he met the king of England, I'm like, well, you met him, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm just, okay. I'm just saying this. I, I really think Bubba Watson would still remember me because I was so offensive to him <laughs> to this day. I think he'd be like, yeah, I remember that jerk. So well, yeah. since we brought it up, what was the Chuck Norris story? So I was going on my first trip to Africa 
and we had a lot of layovers and I was sitting in an airport and I, I saw a man sitting over in one of the benches and I, I asked my companions, is that who I think it is? And they said, well, I, I don't know, but I think so. You should go ask. So I sat down and I, I turned to this man. I said, excuse me, sir, are you Chuck Norris? And he turns and looks me square in the eyes and said, what do you think? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and then we had a great conversation. And, I, and then you fought him after that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's so good. So again, that's a real meeting though. Like you, you had a conversation with him. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And was he a nice guy? He was. Yeah. Yeah. He was incredibly nice. That's great. Yeah. Well, Landon, I normally, uh, you know, do a little intro, but your bio is a little daunting. So I, 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 if you if you could maybe introduce a little bit about kind of some of the things you do and a little bit about your professional background, and then we'll kind of dive in from there. Sure. Yeah. Which this, we never do this, Landon. So just know that if Bryce is a little, it thinks it's a little daunting, it must be really daunting. So let's hear it. So I head up pre-seed investing at a venture capital firm based in Indianapolis, Indiana. And depending on on the quarter, we're one of the most active pre-seed investment funds in the country and in the world. We make a lot of very early stage investments in growth-minded individuals who have never started anything before. And so we place small bets on big people. And that's what I do day to day. Uh, I also help founders contribute to the, the things that they care about in the world. Most founders have their liquidity tied up in their business. And so I, I help founders donate equity to charity. Which, which is huge. Outside of that, I have a big family and, and a lot of time with them. Aren't you, you also are an advisor? Because I think last time you and I connected, you've got a, 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 a startup on the side that you're doing some work with as well. Is that true? Yeah, several companies that I've started over over the years. One, during COVID, all of a sudden, everything was shut down. I moved into my garage in our previous home, and a buddy and I started on nights and weekends a startup studio. We invested in 10 companies. One of those took off and raised larger funding and, and is now cash flow positive and doing really well. That's called Lead Sigma, based out of Kansas City. Excellent. Well, the other thing, and, and you didn't you didn't say it, but you also have a PhD in entrepreneurship from Purdue. You and I met at a World Economic Forum thing in Geneva, Switzerland, of all places, and uh, also a former Kaufman fellow. So, and you also built, didn't you build the statewide curriculum for entrepreneurial education for kind of emerging kind of tech entrepreneurs? Is that true? Yeah, that's right. So I helped several universities build their entrepreneurship curriculum. The first time funded through a grant from the Kauffman Foundation. Kauffman is a multi-billion dollar fund aiming to boost education and entrepreneurship in the U.S. And I've, I took what I learned there at those higher eds. And we've built a, a free online curriculum for first-time founders to learn who they are as an entrepreneur. Usually when they understand well, I'm a founder and instead of a joiner, or I'm a joiner instead of a founder, that's the first big light bulb that goes off. And and uh, we've trained now well over a thousand founders, and we've invested in hundreds of those. So yeah, well, And then give, how big is your family when you say you have a large family? I have four kids. So there are six of us. Brian, I think, I think you can sympathize with that. I can, as can Bryce. 
Yep. Yeah, that's right. Well, and because when you said large, I was thinking, I was thinking like 20 kids because you seem like an overachiever. <laughs> so I'm like, oh gosh, probably have multiple wives and multiple, you know, yeah. So no, no, it, it's kind of how younger siblings learn from the older ones. My neighbors growing up were Amish and they literally had 20 kids. And when you wow. see that, you, you decide that. not to do that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's yeah. called wisdom right there. That's hey, wisdom. and then how big of property do you live on? Our family has uh, a little over 500 acres in Southern Indiana. So when you say your family, is this like extended family or just you? Because the way you said it was kind of mysterious. My parents and my grandmother who's still alive. Okay. Yeah. And do you all live together there? Uh, there are five houses on the wow. property, I think now. And we, we live, my primary residence is about 20 minutes away from that. But that's where we're at every other day. Right on. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And the other thing that I've heard rumors of is you love to rebuild old cars. Oh, yes. I do. Yeah, I, I grew up, my dad was really passionate about American muscle cars. And so from you know nut and bolt restorations, rotisserie restorations, where you, you put a car onto a frame and spin it yeah. around, and sandblast and paint. And, and yeah, yeah. So I grew up with that. And I have a, a 1966 Dodge Power Wagon that I'm restoring right now. And so, yeah, I've just always loved old cars. So if you could send a picture of that into Bryce so we could have it in the link, because I would love... I'd love yeah, to love see to what that what sure. that looks like. So we'll do. And in how far are you from having it restored? You're never done. Okay. You're never done. <laughs> uh, and, so, and it's a lot of money too. I mean, are you dumping money into it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. A good a good build will take you know a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand to, and that's really just the start. And then and then it never stops. So <laughs> it, it takes. It takes a, a family commitment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bryce. He landed. So a couple months ago, you and I caught up eating some good feast barbecue in Louisville, Kentucky. And and I was just, I was personally fascinated by your your journey into entrepreneurship. You know, just even when you were back in college and different. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners kind of that, that story of how you found yourself into this area, this line of work, this this way of thinking, this way of being. Yeah. When I was in first grade, uh, at Christmas, I received a sketchbook and I sketched a, an image of a Lamborghini. Again, I've always loved cars. I then sold that to my friend for 50 cents, which his mother lovingly gave him for lunch money. And I went and used that to buy a little stuffed bear, which I gave to a girl in class. And that's when I realized I loved entrepreneurship. It wasn't until high school that the need arose. So I actually, I was 17 and I had been working at a landscape contractor and my father was laid off working at General Motors and I wanted to go to college. And, and so I decided I wanted to, I needed to make more money. My employer said he would loan me a, an old trailer and, and I had a pickup truck and I started a landscape contracting business, which was just me and my buddy at the beginning. But that grew to several crews. Uh, we had dump trucks and trailers and, and tractors and skid steers, and we were building really large projects at some of the nicest homes in the area. And, and so three years later, I was in college and I was able to, to pay for college. And 
for some reason, I decided to keep going to college and I was there for 13 years. Um, <laughs> and during that time, I couldn't stop starting and, and selling businesses. And eventually, I went on this trip to Africa, the one where <laughs> uh, through which Norris. I met Chuck Norris. And I saw need in the world that was unlike anything I had seen before. And so that kind of took me down a different engineering and philanthropic bent. But yeah, ever since really high school, I would, I would say that was the start of full-time entrepreneurship that really has never stopped. And I remember, wasn't there a point when you thought, maybe, I, maybe I'm not going to go back to college? Like, maybe I'm just going to keep doing this landscape thing because I'm, I'm making some good money. And Well, <laughs> yeah, there was. I don't know if I shared this detail or not, but I was working on a landscaping. We were maintaining the landscaping. I had a chainsaw and I was cutting down a tree and I went to yell to one of my employees and I wasn't paying attention. And I cut my leg with a chainsaw. Oh, my God. And uh, that was the moment when I decided I probably need a piece of paper that says I can do something because if I cut off an arm or a leg, um, you know, I'm going to be up, up a creek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was the turning point, Bryce. And wow. so it wasn't critical. I mean, you, you, I mean, obviously you lived, but like it wasn't, I mean, you didn't cut an artery. Yeah. I went to the bone. I oh went to God. the bone. And, and so the doctor, I, I got there and the doctor said, uh, do you see that? I said, yes. He said, that's your bone. And he touched it. And oh. that's the last thing I remember before I passed out. So, so 13 years. So you kind of jokingly skipped over the fact, obviously you have a PhD in entrepreneurship, but what was that like? Like, how did you obviously go from this landscape company you started? Maybe I'll go back to college. Most people then get a four-year degree and go on, but why did you continue forward and what was that like? I mean, what was that like on you? What was it like on your family? Because I remember, didn't yeah. you get married also during undergrad? So through this entire experience, you're married and you've got a young family. Yeah. So I had, I had been with the woman who's now my wife. I'd been with her since high school as well. And so we were together, we were in, in college and we, we did decide to get married. And that was in my junior year of my undergrad. And we wow. ended up having our first child during my last year of school uh, of undergrad. And it was, it was during that time that in my junior year when the financial collapse happened. And, and so there, there was no one hiring for the things I went to school for. And yet I had a new wife. I had a child that was going to be coming. I, I knew that this path of my life needed to move on. And so, so I did two things. One, I took an unpaid internship in New York City and yeah, with a group of wild, like recent PhD grads who were working on printing meat and robotics and futuristic living homes and, and this crazy stuff. When you say print, printing meat? Yeah, a guy named Oliver, uh, who headed up the International Genetic Engineering Machine team from Harvard, he had an inkjet printer with cells that he would print, print meat with. And this was pretty early. This is, you know, 2008, 2009, and uh, it was printing meat there in, in a lab. Crazy. So, yeah. So I, I went and did that, which was very non-traditional, and that changed the course of my career. 
I learned that I liked engineering and, and technology and this futurist mindset that we could chart out a course a hundred years in advance. And so, so I went back and applied for the National Science Foundation Fellowship because I thought, well, if I can't get paid in the private markets because everything's collapsing, I'll just continue with this school thing. And I like engineering and technology. And so, so that's what I did. I was awarded the National Science Foundation Graduate Research Fellowship, which is a, a free ticket to any school that you want that will have you to do your graduate research. Wow. I chose to stay in Indiana. I have a long-term bet on Indiana. And so that that's played out well so far. Uh, I got my master's and then went into a PhD in the School of Engineering. And so my my PhD is actually from engineering. And I had I had two major advisors. One was a social scientist and the other was an engineer. And both were incredibly strict. So I was doing ethnographic interviews in the bush in Africa because my topic wow. was innovation in, in Africa. And but I was also doing modeling, engineering modeling on the computer. And so I wouldn't recommend two advisors to anyone, but it worked out really really well and finally got done in 2019. Wow. And and this this is the question I have. Was school easy for you or was it hard? I mean, it, obviously you you understood how to play the game. So was it something just came easy? It was easy, relatively easy until I hit my PhD. Yeah. And that's when I hit the edge of myself and and had to go beyond the edge of myself into uncharted territory. I, uh, I'm w- probably one of the very few PhD candidates from a large engineering school like that to have, I think, um, a 1.7 GPA at the point where I was selling my business. Wow. Um, and they still let me keep going. I failed a class as a PhD. Usually that's an absolute no. I failed my dissertation twice. And that's mm-hmm. usually an absolute no. People walk away. But I just wouldn't let it go. I wanted to finish. And and this was meaningful to me. And so against the recommendations of others, I I just kept going and eventually wore them down and, and uh, improved enough go. to got, got through. Wow. If you're part of a homeowners association who's interested in saving money on home services, let me tell you about PIN+. Plus the ultimate platform that brings neighbors together under one powerful concept, power in numbers. With PIN Plus, homeowners associations can now access group discounted pricing on essential home services, trash, pest control, pool maintenance, and so much more all at unbeatable rates. The best part, PIN Plus is designed for you, the community new members. Manage your accounts, pay bills, sign up for services, and discover exciting community-wide events, all with the simple tap of a button. Your entire community, united as one customer, allows them to negotiate fantastic deals with trusted vendors in your area. So why wait? Unleash the powers and numbers today and transform your home service experience. Download the PIN Plus app from the App Store or Google Play Store, or visit www.mypinplus.com for more information. So listening to you talk, I mean... You've done a lot of different things and which is awesome, but they, they could, and in some ways be completely disjointed, you know, what all of the different, so help bring them together. You know, you you know yourself and why they're interesting and why you've gone after them. What is it about those things that inspires you? And why is it that you focused in on those things? What are you, what are you really pursuing? 
uh, as you think about the future? Yeah, I'm an innovator. I'm really competitive. And I'm an achiever. You know, if you look at <laughs> string finders or something, you know, you go take a test. I'm Once I commit to something, I, I won't let go. And it may take 20 years, but I'll, I'll get there. Two, I, I want flourishing and thriving in the communities I live in, the places I commit to. That's Indiana right now. And so when I combine innovation and thriving, I find myself at the edge of technology. And many times it's some mix of entrepreneurship and technology and philanthropy. And, and fortunately, innovation can apply to anything radical innovation or incremental innovation. And also there's this feedback loop of private sector, public sector, entrepreneurship and corporate. And there's this constant learning feedback loop. So I find that I thrive when I'm doing like three things at once and I'm able to draw connections among those things where I see a need in the world that's great. And I see the speed of startup and the efficiency or scale of technology and the power of government or uh, large foundations, philanthropic entities to, to move that needle forward. And, and usually it's just, I live in that, that feedback loop across those things. Yeah. Well, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, this early trip to, to Africa, you know, and so I'm, I'm curious if you could Share with us a little bit. What was it about that trip to Africa that kind of inspired you? And and then what are some other things growing up that have inspired this kind of this way of thinking? Because, you know, drawing a picture of a Lamborghini and selling it and then yeah. starting this landscaping business, what <laughs> what is that drive and where does that come from? Or who does that come from? Like it was it yeah. yeah. But, but but with that, what age were you at when you went to Africa? I was uh twenty. Okay. When I went to Africa the first time. Okay. So my, my dad, he has always worked full time in a factory setting. He went for tool and die. So, you know, crafting the, the, the shapes and implements that make the things we see around us. And then, then he, he switched to being an electrician. So he's always been in the factory and he augmented that factory work and income with entrepreneurial endeavors on the side. And for him, that was real estate and, and building homes. And so I saw him do two full-time things for decades. My, my grandfather on my mom's side, he was also, he worked in a factory setting and then he farmed full-time on the side. So there were two full-time things. He was constantly working in his community on things. And, and then on my dad's side, my grandma, whenever my grandfather was laid off from work or he lost his job, my grandma taught herself to sew and stood up a reupholstering business from scratch that then grew and ended up employing her husband and, and uh, was well known in the community. And so I, I saw people either have obstacles they faced and they overcame them through entrepreneurship or they had goals they wanted to attain and they achieved them through entrepreneurship. So working on two plus things at one time was just the default. That's what you did. It's what I saw. And, uh, and on all sides of the family, 
faith was really important. All sides of the family were come from a Christian faith background. And so giving monetarily, giving time, improving the world around you, like this, this was all built in to what I just what I knew to be the way one was supposed to live. That's what I saw. And so again, that was just the default of when you see a, a problem, you see a need in the world, you see an opportunity, you pursue it, and you do so in a way that brings about justice. And so, you know, that carries through from the start of what I was doing. My first businesses, I loved creating jobs for my friends who couldn't find employment other than flipping burgers. And all of a sudden, they could double their wages by working for me. I then turned around and doubled those wages when charging for their their time. So uh, I was able to both realize a dream of growing a business and employing people around me. And now on the investing side, it's it's the same. We get to create really neat economic outcomes for cities and communities and counties alongside individuals who who never saw that opportunity before, but now are have a go at it. Hmm. That's great. Wow. What does balance look like? Because I'm listening to you talk and and you and I have talked before. So I kind of want to bring in some of some of that part of it where yeah, that, that grind is, is, is interesting and, and very impressive. And you grind, I mean, listening to you talk sometimes about what you're working on, I get, I get exhausted (laughs) (laughs) just because it's a lot and it's, it's super impressive, but what does balance look like? And how do you, how do you balance the drive and the competition that you, that you feel and you kind of enjoy and live into and the desire to have impact in the world? How do you balance that with raising four young kids and still being married and in those other qualities like investing in your community as you talked about what is what does balance look like and how do you how do you do that yeah at some point when i was at kaufman we had a a a guest who spoke and honestly i don't remember who it was but but one thing stood out to me and they said it's there's no such thing as work-life balance for the entrepreneur it's work-life integration i don't know if i fully buy into that or agree but it certainly was helpful in helping Mm -hmm. me think about my life. I started including my kids in what I did. I would bring them to entrepreneurship pitch nights. And so they could see innovation at work and they could see opportunity. And I would integrate them and my, and my wife as well into activities with, in our community. And so, yeah, I think the integration was key, not separating or putting things in buckets. The other was one, my wife's also, she's a saint and puts up with my shenanigans. And so um, we had to we had to come to an agreement on sacred times because at one point I would be sleeping under my desk in a sleeping bag and you know get up and drink a Red Bull and go back to work. And that's not sustainable. It's not well. It's not healthy. And, and so we carved out sacred times for our family, which ended up being a family night together every Friday and uh, a time with my wife every Saturday and another time on Wednesday and on Sunday for our church. So those were sacred times. Other than that, under these certain windows that we carved out that were untouchable windows, I had the freedom to go 100%. And so that I needed that. I needed to be able to go without any restraint for limited periods of time <laughs> and then <laughs> entered in, into that rest and community. That's not how I live day to day right now. 
there is more uh, more sacred time than not at this in this season. Well, I was going to say, uh, Wendell Berry once said uh, that fences bring freedom, mm. and yeah, just listening to your talk, kind of needing to know kind of what those sacred times are, what those guardrails are. It gave you a sense of freedom to like, okay, now I can move with with speed and gusto and feel a sense of freedom because the person I love, my wife, has given me permission in a sense. And so I don't feel the guilt or the shame of missing something because we, we've communicated about those things. I like that idea of sacred times. Uh, and and the, the, the phrasing of work-life integration, I think, is also helpful because I think a lot of entrepreneurs and investors that we talk to there's, there's, there is that guilt that they feel with the, the pressures and the needs to be present at work, but also present at home. And how do you, how do you quote unquote balance those things? So there is, to your point of balancing, we do need to be healthy in how we, where we sleep. We're not sleeping under the desk at work every night and we're eating healthy and we're working out, we're making space for those things, but also for our families. There's a, there is a balance, but I like this idea of integration that we're not duplicitous. We're not separating these unnecessarily because i do think too our children seeing the value and the and the joy of work uh is i think a good good thing uh so work is not this thing dad goes and does and it takes our father away from us but it's something that he enjoys something that the community benefits from and it's something that i get to appreciate as as a young person so i I like that integration language Yeah. yeah and i just think especially all my kids are raised now but the more they can be involved in your life and your community i mean it's that thing going you know there's joy to you know like i just think i just think it just gives them an understanding and even an inspiration where some of your kids will go wow i really want to i mean do you think about your dad having two jobs and doing that i i just think they could feel like it is taking you away or they could feel like I'm a part of that. Like we're all working together. I mean, on pitch nights and stuff. And, you know, I, I always have always tried and Bryce brings, I mean, his next trip here, he'll bring his daughter with him and, you know, she'll sit in some of the meetings and, you know, she makes better decisions than he does sometimes. So <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, but I, I just think creating excitement, but I do think though, sleeping on your desk is bad. I don't want any listeners to go And but, but I think for a season there's, you know, like Lauren and I would have, yeah, Red Red Bull is evil. (laughs) (laughs) But, but I do think there's seasons where you, if you're building a business, because I remember one time, you know, saying to Laura, I need a year. And then 365 days came and I had to quit because there was no end in sight. And I just remember going, was sad, but I also just thought I made that commitment and thought, there'd be a different outcome and there wasn't. So I think that's great. I, th- I think that's good. And I, I love the idea of sacred times because it is, it sounds a little hokey, but it is sacred because if you miss those times, you know, that's bad. Can't so, get them back. That's right. Yeah. There was a, a study Harvard put out on work and uh, it found it wasn't how much you work. It was how distracted you were when you were around your kids. And so I think working a lot and yet engaging your children in productivity and work and adding value to the world, bringing them into the fold, if you will, yeah, I think is one of the best things you can do. Uh, yep. to, they, they learn by seeing and doing. So yeah, the more, the more of that I can do at this point, the better. And what, what's the ages of your kids right now? I have 12 down to four. Okay. And, so you're in uh, it. I mean, that's, you're, you got yeah. busy. Busy time with kids. Yeah. Yeah. How many years you've been married now? 
Because you got married when you were 12. You're in high school. You gave her that bear. Yeah, 15 years. Okay. Uh, we've been together for over 20. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Landon, I did want to dive in because I think obviously your background is super interesting and I was excited to share that with our listeners. But I think the other thing that you bring that a lot of people don't know about is this donate equity piece. And so you kind of you alluded to it in your in your intro. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that because we have a lot of entrepreneurs that we work with, a lot of investors, but it is this little known thing. And it can be quite complicated. Uh, you know, so in real estate, there's a 1031 exchange, there's a certain window, you've got to get the property valued in order to roll your investment over and not pay the the, the taxes. Similarly, in in a liquidity moment for an entrepreneur, that exists. And what I hear oftentimes, people are they're grinding and they're passionate about, okay, I'm about to get this payday and then I'm going to do some amazing work in the world. And if they had just thought about that a little bit sooner, it could have been even better. So maybe talk a little bit about this idea of donate equity and what it is and why it's important and why more people should be thinking about it. Yeah, thanks. You're right. Most people don't know that there is an option to give to the things they care about before they have cash in their hand. And for me, in one of my businesses, I I gave a portion of equity when that business was acquired. And that was the first time I was aware of that process at all. And I was a you know, a PhD nerd looking through IRS white papers, figuring out how to do this and sharing them with my, my, you know, small town CPA who had never heard of this either. And we were trying to figure it out together. And, uh, it it was, it was probably Bill High, who at the time was with the National Christian Foundation now, and then Signatory, who took me under his wing and let me sit in on some meetings where he met with entrepreneurs, he met with business owners and shared with them that they could make a huge impact on the world with their business today and they didn't have to wait until they sold it. So basically how it works is that you can pledge or you can give a piece of your business. And so so a charity, either a foundation or a 501c3, would hold on to that just like an investor would have a piece of your company. And whenever there is a liquidity event, they benefit, again, just like an investor would benefit from having shares. So that liquidity goes to the charity. And what that allows you to do is give pre-tax dollars, where normally if you sell a company and you celebrate and you decide what to do with your money, you're doing so after capital gains and income tax have already been taken out. And so your ability to give is, is much lower, significantly lower. And so this way you can you can give an even bigger gift to uh, your alma mater, to your church, to that organization that you care about. Uh, and we've helped people give millions and, and millions of dollars away that have turned into liquidity for startups uh, to give to charity. And how long has this been available to do? Uh, this has been going on for a long time. And this is something that, again, National Christian Foundation does, but also any of the major players you would think about, your vanguards, your swabs, fidelities, they're all helping major donors do this. 
But for the average person, it simply hasn't been available, it hasn't been promoted. Yet we have people who own farms and real estate and small businesses all over America that have appreciated assets where over the years the business has grown, the farmland is more valuable, the real estate is more valuable. And yet they have no idea that this is available to them. All they know is someday when I sell, I can help people. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, and then a lot of times too, if it's a first time founder, you know, and they've had a liquidity event, they don't, they don't actually go and talk to the community foundation, the national Christian foundation, Absolutely right. the Charles Schwab until the liquidity event happens. That's right. And so they don't actually learn about it until after the fact. So they learn, they know it for their second exit, but not for that first one. <laughs> so. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we, we worked with David Hauser as one example. He sold Grasshopper, which is a phone extension service. And when he did so, he did all of the normal financial preparations. It was a large, you know, pretty sizable exit. But he had no idea on this particular giving option. And we worked with him. He, he heard Brad Feld talk about giving, Pledge 1%, which is a giving option, maybe founders have heard about, uh, was kind of coming online at this time. And, and so he wanted to explore this. And we were able to uh, gift startup holdings that he had made investments into to, to a group of founders who were starting a new foundation in Kansas City. And that, that ended up leading to the forming of the Kansas City Startup Foundation and, and led to follow-on gifts and, and investments in the community. But, but it, it came ultimately from one person who was willing to, to do it first and, you know, kind of take a little bit of a risk. But, but honestly, it's, it's fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. And then what, what's the process? I mean, you say it's straightforward, but there is, it can, it, it is a little complicated if, if you don't know what you're doing. So what does that look like? Yeah. So first there's an inventory of the assets. So we say, you know, th- this is my business. There are tangible assets, intangible assets. I have a, you know, a website and code base, but I also have a building and tables and chairs. So we take an, an inventory of those items and uh, you would create an asset transfer agreement, much like you would have an asset agreement when in, in M&A transaction. And those assets will be valued, they'll be appraised, and that's done by a third-party appraiser and and so you you pay for that person to appraise so there's some cost with that and then there will be some legal review from both sides of the transfer document and then and then the gift is made and and you can as i mentioned earlier give to a, a foundation so a community foundation for example if you don't know what you want to give to yet or how to divide that up you can make a gift to a to a donor advised fund held by a foundation and then when you know what you want to gift to, then, then you can make those individual gifts. Conversely, you can give directly to a 501c3. And that 501c3 would then hold that asset. And there's some accounting, right, every year for that uh, asset that's held. And then at the time of liquidity, when there's a transaction, then uh, the nonprofit has issued their, uh, their portion and in that liquidity event. So... That's cool. um, so yeah, pretty straightforward. There, there are thousands, tens of thousands of these that have happened. So it's, there's no reinventing of wheels, uh, but there is a little bit of a cost and, and some time involved. Yeah. Wow. But for a small nonprofit, 
this can be transformative. All of a sudden they receive hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and overnight that transforms their their mission and their capacity. Yeah. What I think it makes sense when people can help, like, because people, like you said, I mean, all the, a lot of the founders I'm with starting companies are thinking, oh, I'm going to do something big in the end where they can, you know, and haven't thought it through. So I'm hoping listeners are like, how, how can we do this? Because I just think it's smart financial planning. So, mm-hmm. yeah. There, there's a, a book I'm going to hold up here. It's called Exit Right. That's, that's pretty good and uh, can help a founder think through some of those things ahead of time. The first time founder doesn't consider, just simply doesn't know, right? What they don't know and doesn't consider those items ahead of time. You are a serial entrepreneur, but you're interesting because you're also people oriented. Like you're very, you're very out focused, which, which is rare. I mean, especially for an engineer, engineers are not typically even aware of themselves sometimes, (laughs) which, so I do think it's interesting. And and I, I just go a lot of like who you are and your drive has been inspirational. Just going, you really like you care about Indiana. And I'm just saying this out loud because everyone's listening. Nobody cares about Indiana, but you do. And, but like in a real way, like you really are making changes in Indiana that will impact for generations to come. Thanks for listening to this episode of More Than Profit and definitely make sure to check out DonateEquity.com to learn more about how you can support the causes you care about in a more tax-advantaged way that leads to more money going to the causes that need it the most. To stay up to date with More Than Profit, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, drop us a review so others can find us as well. Don't forget to check out our new website at morethanprofit.fm where we have additional content and past episodes. You can also learn more about what's ahead by following us on Twitter at listen underscore MTP. More Than Profit is a production of Access Ventures and is hosted by Bryce Butler and Brian McKay. Our executive producer is Crystal Escoval and our associate producer is Bryn McKay. Audio production assistance is provided by Resonate Recording. Our theme song today was No Man's Land by Slapstorm. I'm Bryn McKay and you've been listening to More Than Profit. More Than Profit.